Thank you, Eugene. Well, good morning again. This morning, we start something that in the short history of Redemption Arizona has not been done before. It is a six-week series that is locally contextualized uh, for each local congregation. If you're kind of new to Redemption and you don't understand uh, the church, um, essentially what it is is that we are one church, Redemption Arizona, but with six different congregations led by six different staffs, elder boards, and uh, lead teaching pastors. Uh, and so we, we do a lot of things in a unified and in a centralized way, but we also have recognized the need for some locally contextualized vision and mission preaching. And so that's what we're going to be doing uh, during this next six weeks. Now, obviously, the, the vision <coughs> and the purpose of Arcadia Redemption is, is supposed to fit into the Big R Redemption very comfortably. And so let me just tell you that the Big R Redemption Church, uh, they are these two uh, pithy little statements that really say a lot about who we are as a church and as a people. Uh, Big R Redemption, we are gospel-centered and outward-focused. And so everything, we believe that everything comes back to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of his word. And so we are centered, we are rooted in that, but we are also outward focused. We know that God calls us to, uh, to be sent out into our communities, both locally and globally, in order to uh, tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. There's another pithy little statement that we like to say around redemption, and, and it's this, all of life is all for Christ. In other words, everything that we do is powered and centered in who Jesus Christ is because he is now living in, in us by his Holy Spirit. So having known that and then all of the congregational leaders working uh, with the redemption leadership team over the last several months, uh, we came up in Arcadia with the, our little slogan, our vision slogan is this, Arcadia, we are going to be focused on knowing Jesus and loving our community. Knowing Jesus, the idea that you and I need to really know who he is, but that at the same time, we are also sent out to love our community. And that community is not just the local community around Arcadia, but hopefully someday, uh, whether it's in connection with the Big R Redemption or on our own, we're also going to be very globally uh, involved as well. Now, with every vision, we must understand that there has to be theology, biblical truth that backs that up. Well, the theology that backs up our vision statement and, and what we're trying to do, what our purpose is, uh, comes out of really the last two series that we've preached from, and that would be John chapter 17, uh, where Jesus prays for his church, and also the, the book of First Peter that we spent 16 weeks going through. So uh, our, our, our statement is knowing Jesus, loving our community. Here's the theology that backs it up, and there's actually more if you want the document uh, we have a document that more fully explains this. Again, you can contact Stephanie Shoemate in our office, and she can email you the document. But essentially, here, here are two paragraphs that help unpack this. Jesus says that eternal life is to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He said that in John chapter 17, verse 3. Now, to know Jesus is to engage with him. That would be through his word, through scripture, 
through prayer, to, through talking with God, actually opening up and, and talking to him, and then also uh, through his people. We need to be in community with each other. That's one of the reasons why we had the Between Services brunch today. We wanted to highlight the fact that we are a people, we are a family, we are a community, and that we can know Jesus better through each other as Jesus manifests himself in uh, each of us. Additionally, however, Jesus mandates in John 17 that we are to engage our community as well. Not only do we engage Jesus, but we engage our community both locally and globally, for he has sent us. He says this in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, Father, but that you keep them from the evil one, as you have sent me into the world, so have I also sent them into the world. And so essentially what we need to understand is that as a church, both individually and corporately, our identity is in Jesus Christ, both called to know him and to make him known to those who do not yet know him. So at its core, the purpose of the church is for people to know who Jesus is, not only for salvation, but also for sanctification, not only for crossing that line of faith, but also to learn how to live to be more like him. And it's to proclaim the good news to those who do not know him yet. So at Arcadia, the process of knowing Jesus in both salvation and sanctification is accomplished primarily through three major things that we do. One would be the Sunday morning proclamation of his word. The second would be the redemption communities that we encourage all of you to be a part of. That's our version of the small groups. And then the third way is through theological education events and classes, things like the Wednesday night classes and things like the surge program as well. But the purpose of the church is also realized by mobilizing into the local community and into the world to sacrificially, and, uh, to sacrificially serve and minister to those people that don't even know him yet uh, and to proclaim, as Peter says in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, to proclaim the excellencies of him, Jesus, who called you and I out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And there are ways, even though uh, the Arcadia congregation is very young, we are only three years, essentially three and a half years old, we are already doing that quite a bit in our local community through uh, the refugee work uh, led primarily by Josh Prather and, and uh, the organization CGI, Community and Global Initiatives. We're doing a lot of that. We have also uh, are growing and expanding our partnership with Gateway Elementary School, which we're very excited about, and Gateway Elementary School is excited about being involved with us. And then, believe it or not, there are people in this congregation who quietly, behind the scenes, have come to me and talked to me a little bit about getting involved in ministering to prisons, prisoners, and so they're starting to write letters to prisoners as well, and that's a way of engaging our local community as well, because if you start writing prisoners, invariably, you may end up eventually being involved with their families as well, and we're starting to do that. In addition to that, there's a possibility, not sure about this yet down the road, but there is a possibility that down the road, we will become involved with a ministry known as Alongside Ministries, which is a transitional prison ministry, which if we begin to partnership with them, you'll be hearing more about. But there are other opportunities as well. Again, if you would like more information on that, you can contact Stephanie Shoemate in the office. So that, that's really um, our vision here locally at uh, the Arcadia Congregation. And I'm going to remind you of that every single week of this six-week series at the beginning of each uh, message. I want to get that into our DNA, into the, the streams that are running around here. But that leads us into introducing this series, six weeks, titled Building a Better Church. Every congregation is doing this series titled Building a Better Church. Each 
church, however, each congregation has got a little bit of a different nuance on what they're going to talk about. There's one week in here that we're talking about something that none of the other churches are talking about because the leadership here felt that this is a really important part of being what would be called a better or a great church. But essentially, here are the six topics we're going to look at. And by the way, it could have been 20 topics. It was hard to narrow it down, but here we go. Next week, we're going to talk about proclamation. In other words, the importance of the Word of God and the Gospel, that it is involved in everything that we do. Uh, the third week, we're going to talk about generosity. Now, I know some of you already are looking at your calendar going, okay, that's the week I can miss because he's going to talk about us giving more money. That's not really what's going to happen that day, although I will talk a little bit about money. But we need to understand that when God talks about generosity, when the Bible talks about generosity, he's talking about generosity of spirit. And that there are many currencies of generosity besides just money. So we're going to talk about that. The fourth week, we're going to talk about prayer, which should be the foundation of everything that we do. And then the fifth week is that week we're going to talk about something that I think is really important, and that is confession. I will tell you, great churches are confessing churches. And one of the reasons that great churches are confessing churches is because not only do they acknowledge their sin... But they also, because they're a confessing church, they understand forgiveness and thankfulness like no other community does. And so we're going to be talking actually about those three things. And then sixth week, we'll be talking about the fact that we are called and sent. That there is this thing called the Great Commission that we find in Matthew chapter 28. And so we need to be a church that is, that is not only knowing Jesus, but at the same time, we are being sent out into the world on his behalf. So that leaves today, and here's what we're going to talk about today. The church is a body with different members, but we are called to unity in Christ. That is the big idea. We're going to talk about unity of the body today. The church is a body with different and diverse members, but we are called to unity in Jesus Christ. There's somebody... If you can imagine anybody more cynical than me, somebody probably more cynical than I, I am actually said this once recently. They said, one way to guarantee division in the church is to preach on unity. I don't know what it is about the human condition that does that, but it just seems to do that. We're going to do it anyway, and guess what? We seem more unified after the first service th than we ever have before. Perhaps it's because we all had food together. I don't know. Food seems to be a unifying factor, but I think it's going to work out just fine. So if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians, it's in the New Testament, chapter 12. So 1 Corinthians 12, you're wondering where 1 Corinthians is, it's right before 2 Corinthians. Okay, there you go, all right? So here's what we're going to do. There's 27 verses in this passage, no time to do a word study on every one of them. What we're going to do is just walk through the passage paragraph by paragraph and simply draw out the application of the big idea. That as a body, we have different and diverse members, but that we are unified in Christ, and therefore, all of us need each other. You and I have need of each other. I need you, you need me, everyone in this room needs each other. That's going to be one of the big themes that we look at. So let's get started. That first paragraph, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, Now, Concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. For you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one is speaking in, in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. 
and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Uh, every commentator I read said the same thing, essentially this, spiritual gifts abounded in the church at Corinth but were greatly abused. Now, if you're wondering what a spiritual gift is, it's that when you come to Christ, uh, God specifically uh, empowers you, enables you, gives you the energy for one or two, maybe three very special things that you can do very well, better than most other people, and you are to use them on behalf of the church. They are called your spiritual gifts, whether it's teaching or administration or mercy or, or generosity, whatever that is. Those gifts are to be used for the benefit of the people in the church and for the glory of God. Now, understand that when Paul talks about the fact that the, the gifts were being abused in the church uh, at Corinth, he's not saying that the gifts are the problem. We cannot look at the spiritual gifts and say the gifts are the problem, but rather those who have been gifted are the ones that are creating the problems because Paul is going to explain to us that there is an unhealthy attitude and a wrong perspective that all of the gift havers, the gift holders, have in expressing their gifts in this church in Corinth. And we need to understand that every church is susceptible to this potential problem and this challenge. So understand that triggering the abuse was not the gift itself, but an unhealthy attitude and a vastly limited perspective by the members in the church. And if you read this, this uh, chapter in context, that means after chapter 11, you see that Paul is kind of on a roll about how the church is, is in a, a state of dysfunction at Corinth and they need to get out of that state of dysfunction and become a healthier church. And like I said, every church is susceptible to this challenge, this idea that they're going to start to, the people are going to abuse their gifts, use them in the wrong way. And in fact, many churches succumb to this problem. Many churches actually die because of this problem, they can't get it, they can't get control of the people and the bad attitudes and wrong perspectives behind the gifts. And that's why Paul calls us to be on guard and alert against this problem. The problem is, is that it's just human nature to want the things that Paul is going to speak against in this particular chapter. And here is that unhealthy attitude and limited perspective um, sort of boiled down to one statement that Paul is writing against. It's the attitude that says, I have no need of anyone who is not like me or who does not share my passion and perspective. I have no need of anyone who is not like me and who does not share with my passion and my perspective. And, and he starts this paragraph by saying, listen, I don't want you to be uninformed. That word in the Greek literally could be translated ignorant. In other words, I don't want you to be without this important information that I'm about to give you. And what's that important information? Two things. Number one, what is the origin of your giftedness? Why are you gifted the way you are? And you need to understand, it's not because of you, it's because God made you that way. So you can never boast about your gift because it was God that gave you the gift. The only thing you should be boasting about, if you're bo going to boast about anything, is the fact that God is powerful and not you. So the origin of the gift, and then secondly, what the purpose of the gift is for. The purpose of the gift is not for the glory and the honor of the one who has the gift, which can always become a problem in churches. That happens a lot. But rather, it's not for the glory and honor of the one who has the gift, but rather for the edification and the building up of the, other, of the rest of the church, the church members, and for the glory of God. So really, really important. And then, and then he says this weird thing about, you know, before you were a believer in Christ, while you were pagans, you were drawn to mute idols, and no one who is filled with the true spirit of God would ever say that Jesus is accursed. Well, what's going on there? 
Well, Colin Cruz explains it this way. In Corinth, during this time, 2,000 years ago, it was common practice to, in the name of a false god, go and curse other people. What you would do is you would take a sacrifice to a false god, the god of sun or the god of wood or, or whatever it is. You would take a sacrifice there, and the idea was that it was transactional in nature. Once you sacrifice something to that god, that god then gave you the power to go and curse somebody else. So that, that was one of the motivating factors in, trying, in, in temples trying to get people to go and sacrifice stuff to their gods because it always costs money to do that. But the idea is that if I went to, I went to a temple and I, sac I made a sacrifice to the god, of, the god of wood, okay, and then I did that, and then I would go over here and I would walk up to Kristoff, and I'm mad at Kristoff, and so I say, by the name and the power of the god of wood, I curse you, Kristoff. And then he can't run anymore or whatever it is that he likes to do, supposedly, ostensibly. Paul is saying, in Christ, that's not what you're supposed to do. In fact, in the church of Corinth, they had some people coming into the church thinking that's what you were supposed to do with Jesus. You come and you believe in Jesus, and you offer your life as a sacrifice to him, and now you can go in and curse people in the name of Jesus. That would be a problem, wouldn't it? He's saying that's not supposed to happen. And some of the people were actually manifesting their spiritual gifts in that way. They were using their gifts as an advantage over other people in the church. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is love and mercy and forgiveness. Therefore, the purpose of you knowing Jesus and manifesting his power is to go and show love, mercy, and forgiveness to other people. It's to build up the body. It's to benefit others and to give glory to God. So it's really, really important. The idea is that in Christ, things are different. The funny thing about this is that in Corinth, the self was supreme. The self was number one. Everybody walked around so saying, I'm looking out for myself. I'm the most important person in this world. A and so when Paul starts teaching this, they're looking at this going, ah, it seems like Paul doesn't get it. But Paul's point is that in Jesus, everything is different. Thank goodness in the 21st century, we don't have those kind of attitudes to deal with anymore. That's the relevancy of God's word throughout the ages. All right, the next, chapter, uh, the next uh, paragraph, verses 4 through 11, Paul writes, Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to each one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, and to another the ability to distinguish between the spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, these eight verses right here are very often used if you're going to teach on what spiritual gifts are. Let's say Wednesday night we said we're going to have a class on spiritual gifts. This would be one of the four passages that we would use to say this is where we find out what biblical spiritual gifts are. There's 26 of them. There's eight or nine of them here listed in, in this passage, and we can go into Romans and 1 Peter and 2 Peter, all these uh, Ephesians and all these other places to find where all these gifts are. And then you talk about the different gifts, and then we say, which gift do you have? And you can kind of analyze that way. And it's wonderful teaching, but that's not what we're going to do this morning. Instead, 
there is a perspective also, an underlying perspective in this paragraph that Paul is trying to get at, and it should be obvious, and here's the perspective. There is great diversity in the church, but because that diversity all comes from the one same source, there should also be unity. Diversified yet unified in Christ. And you can see him going back and forth, back and forth. There's a variety of gifts, but one spirit. There's a variety of service, but one Lord. There's a variety of activities, but only one God who empowers them all. And that word empowers, which is used twice in this paragraph, is the Greek word energon, from which we get our English word energy, and it literally means accomplished by. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, no matter what you're doing, no matter whether it's a, a gift or an activity or a service, whatever you're doing, it's all being powered and accomplished by God. His energy is literally flowing through you to be able to do these things. And in verse 11, we see that whatever that empowerment or energy is that we receive, it is apportioned to us, literally distributed to us by God, and that he's the one that decides how that's going to be apportioned, not us. He is the one who figures out how this is going to be divvied up, so to speak. Therefore, you and I should not look at our giftedness and then look around at other people's giftedness and suffer from what some people call gift envy. We should never look around and go, I wish I was gifted more like that person over there. Or we should never look around and say, it's too bad other people aren't gifted more like I am. We should do neither one of those things. And then furthermore, you see in verse 7 that the purpose of all of this is for the common good. One commentator writes, gifts and talents are not distributed to us for the honor and advantage of those who have them, but for the glory and benefit of God, the church, and others. Next paragraph, verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Here's what Paul is saying in this short little two-verse paragraph. He's saying, listen, no matter who you are, no matter what you are, no matter where you are, no matter who you know, no matter what you have, and no matter how you got where you are, your identity is now thoroughly in Christ. First and foremost, the, the priority of your identity is Jesus Christ. In other words, you're not a Greek Christian. You are now a Christian who happens to be Greek. You're not an athletic Christian. You are a Christian who happens to be athletic. This is really important to understand, just, just coming from me. I like to run. Most of you know I ran the marathon last week. My identity is not in marathon running, though. It's just something that I do. My identity primarily is in Jesus. I also happen to like Jackie, my wife. I, I mean, I would even, go, I love Jackie, my wife. I mean, she's really important to me. 25 and a half years of marriage could not be going any better than it is right now. It is a celebration all the time, but my identity is not in Jackie. My identity is in Jesus Christ, and he's actually given me the gift of Jackie. It's only because of his sovereignty that I have Jackie in my life. That's where my identity lies. It's in, it's in Jesus. And so, uh, Paul wants us to see that before he launches into these last two paragraphs that we're going to look at where he talks about two wrong perspectives that people with gifts, that would be any Christian, tend to have about their gifts that can make them 
uh, be abused, which can become a problem. So let's look at that first wrong perspective, which we see in verses 14 through 20. He writes, For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So Paul finishes this chapter uh, by launching into two paragraphs of wrong perspectives, and this is the first per wrong perspective. This is the perspective that says, the, the member, the person looks around and says to themselves, I didn't get gifted the way I wanted to be gifted. I don't like my gift. So I'm going to make myself feel better by withdrawing from the body. As usual, wrong perspectives are generally fueled by selfish and prideful motives. In other words, here's what, what they're saying. I didn't get what I want, so I'm going to take my gift and go home. But here's the problem. You create two problems when you, when you look at things that way, when you have that perspective. Number one, if you leave the body, it makes us less of a complete body. And number two, frankly, even worse, you are now isolated. And people who are isolated eventually wither and die. Your faith cannot be sustained. You will become bitter and hard-hearted. That's a problem. You need to be a part of the body. You need to be a part of, of the community. Isolation is not good, and, and cutting off parts of the body is not good. In other words, if you're an eye and you leave, then we're not going to be able to see. If you're an ear and you leave, we're going to have trouble hearing. If you're a mouth and you leave, we're going to struggle to be able to taste and get nourishment. Colin Cruz writes a, a wonderful thing about this. He says, dissatisfaction with one's function cannot mean that one ceases to be a part of the body. If the whole body consisted of one gift, how would it cope? God arranges all the parts of the body as he saw fit. If it were all one part, there would be no body. And then the great Matthew Henry has a wonderful quote too for this passage. He writes, No rationale is found in verses 14 through 20 for wishing discontentedly in ourselves or for envying others. We should be doing the duties of our own place, not disparaging ourselves nor quarreling with others. So that's the first wrong perspective that Paul deals with. He says we are called to value the gift that God has chosen to give us and participate in the function of the body using that gift. Now here comes the second negative perspective. Again, a perspective that's driven by self-centeredness and, and pride. Verses 21 through 27. Paul writes, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually 
members of it. So in this last paragraph that we're going to look at, we run into the people who love the gifts they have, but they are not satisfied with just that. These are the people who love their gifts so much that they believe that three other things should take place. One of these three, two of these three, or often all three of them. And here they are. Number one, they believe that they should be honored above everyone else. Look at the gift I have. Where would this church be without me? You need to be showing me more honor because of this gift that I bring to the table. Number two, they believe that everyone else in the church, no matter who, should also aspire to have the gifts, passion, and perspective that they have. It's so good here, you need to be here with me. And then lastly, number three, they are so enamored with their gifts that they think that they have no need of anyone else. And so they treat everyone else as their inferior. Now, Paul writes this because Paul knows human nature. And human nature is always, as Luther said, always, always, always going to tend to bend in on itself. We're going to curve in on ourself. It's called the self-serving bias, if you want to look that up on the internet. It's the fact that we always think more of ourselves than others. It's the fact that we're always giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt compared to others. It's the fact that we will always elevate ourselves over, over and against everybody else if given the opportunity. And even if not given the opportunity, we will take that opportunity if we think we can get away with it. Russ Johnson rightly asserts, contrary to popular belief, we can predict human behavior. And the reason we can predict human behavior is because of sin nature. We always bend in on ourselves. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, I've seen this manifested in the church in Corinth. I understand, I understand human nature. And so I know that this is always going to be a problem. And so we need to guard against it in Christ. Larry Osborne, who uh, is a pastor in California of a, of a big church and has written a number of books, Probably his most famous book that he's written is a book called A Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God. It's a marvelous, marvelous book, and it's been out now probably for 15 years, and it's been uh, re-edited, and I think it's under a new title now, but if you just Google A Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God, you'll, you'll see this. But in that book, he has four chapters dealing with this perspective and attitude that is uh, unpacked by Paul in this one paragraph. Four chapters on it. And here are some of the summary verses that Osborne comes up with. Number one, he wants church members to know your gift is not more important than everyone else's. Number two, he wants you to understand that your gift does not have to be my gift. In other words, if you have a gift and you're excited about it, you cannot practice what he calls gift projection. You shouldn't be projecting your gift on the rest of the body. In other words, instead, what you should be doing is manifesting your gift and appreciating everybody else's giftedness. He also likes to say this. He says, you know, your passion does not have to be my passion. It's not that your passion is bad. I'm glad that you have passion, he says, and you should have passion to the fullest and you should go and manifest that passion. But just because you have that passion doesn't mean that God has wired me to have that passion. I have a different passion. And both of them are good and they should coexist rather than competing with each other. He also says that the church is not effective if we all look alike, work alike, serve alike, and think alike. The homogenization of the church, which we tend towards, is really not healthy or biblical. And the last one is he says, listen, my spirit-led desires can be different than your spirit-led desires. In fact, that's the way God designed it. He chose to make it that way. 
This all filters into something that we all are afflicted with. Every one of us are afflicted with this. It's called the false consensus effect. The false consensus effect. Here's what that is. The false consensus effect is the tendency for each one of us to overestimate the degree to which other people agree with our values, opinions, attitudes, beliefs, likes, and dislikes. It's the tendency for every one of us to overestimate the degree to which everyone else agrees with our values, opinions, attitudes, beliefs, likes, and dislikes, and perspectives. In other words, it's the tendency for all of us to think the world would be better place if everyone just liked the same things we liked and had passion about the same things that we had passion about. This is why we have multiple 24-hour news networks on cable TV where you get people making these statements that start like this. Everybody knows and everybody believes and anybody who knows anything thinks this way. And the truth is, is that none of that is true. Otherwise, we wouldn't have 24-hour cable news networks, right? We wouldn't have any need for them if everybody thought the same way. That's the whole point. It's the idea that you go to a movie, let's say Titanic, and you loved it, and somebody else like me didn't like it, and you're shocked, and you think there's something deficient in me, and I can't think of anybody who would like that movie, and I think there's something deficient in you. That's false consensus effect. We're both practicing it against each other. The truth is, is that God wired you to like Titanic, and he wired me with good taste, okay? It's simple, you know? The problem is, is that we love affinity. We love affinity. We gather around affinity. Hey, we're going to do this thing over here, which we really like. Anybody who likes it, come over here with us. We love affinity. And, and, and so we, we tend to make groups around affinity, and we love to research affinity. Again, just, just Google affinity seeking, and you'll see all the research on it. And in the church, it manifests itself this way. If we're an eye, we tend to want to be with other eyes, and we want to make other people to be eyes. And if we're, if we're a foot, we tend to want to be with other foots and uh, feet. And, and we want to make other people to become feet like we are. If we're noses, we want, we want to be with noses. And so we begin subtly or not so subtly to do that thing where we go, okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. All the eyes over here, all the ears, you go over there, and all the feet go somewhere else, like outside. Get out of here, feet. Right? Problem is, is that once we have a church that looks and functions exactly like us, then we have no body, and we have the ability to do virtually nothing. The eyes could see. They'd be great at seeing, but they could never proclaim, they could never hear, and they could never go. The ears could hear, but they could not see. They could never disciple anyone, they could never teach anyone, and they would never be able to learn. And then the, and then the feet, they wouldn't be able to serve, they wouldn't be able to preach, they wouldn't be able to discern, but they could sure go. The feet would just go. They just go, and then they get to wherever they're going, and then they just have to stand there and do nothing. They wouldn't be effective without the rest of the body. Mark Driscoll has a great, I love this illustration. The people in the first service didn't apparently like it as much. I'm going to do it again anyway. I love this illustration, and I think the timing is perfect because last night, Jackie and I were invited to a nacho party. That's it. We went over to this place, and it was just about nachos, different flavored nachos. We ate nachos. Nachos, nachos, nachos. Oh, there's a little guacamole too, but they go with nachos, okay? So that's it. So Driscoll says this about these verses. Let's say your body was only feet and you went to a party and you wanted nachos. This would be very disappointing because you could get to the nachos, but you could never eat the nachos. That is not only inconvenient, 
but it's torture. And, and in the midst of the church, it's unhealthy. And so Paul is pushing back against this. See, we always seek affinity. We're more comfortable with it. We feel more superior when we're with our affinity group. And because of it, we really begin to believe that we don't need others. That's why Paul says, you don't have the right to look at anybody else and say, I have no need of you. Paul is saying that in the church, this perspective is obliterated because of Jesus, because of the gospel, because Jesus is the head of the church. Literally, that word head is kephala, which means wellspring of source. He is our resource. He is, he is the empowerment. He is the energy that does everything. He is in charge. And so instead of saying, I have no need of you, we must say, I have need of you. I need you. I need all of you. We need each other. And you even need the part of the body that you don't particularly care for. And let me lead into this one last thing with that. Notice that Paul writes, on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor, and our unrepresented parts are treated with greater modesty. That Greek word modesty is literally decorum, and what Paul is saying there is that what we need to do with the more obscure servants in the church, there are many people that are gifted in the church that you don't see actually manifesting their gift, those obscure servants, they're the ones that we're supposed to treat with the greatest decorum, meaning the greatest respect. You know, everybody, now I'm speaking in sort of a double entendre here. I'm talking about physical body and church body. Everybody here has members that do things that no one notices or no one wants to notice until it quits doing those things or it does those things incorrectly. Those body parts stop working. Then we notice. I want you to know that we have people here at this church, Redemption Arcadia, Sure, there's people like this in other churches, but I'm speaking about Redemption Arcadia. We have people here who serve week in and week out by cleaning, by maintaining, by fixing, by praying, by discipling, by counseling, and by otherwise doing all the tough, behind-the-scenes, obscure, and often dirty jobs. And if they didn't do those things, we would be nowhere. We would be lost without them. This is very earthy, I recognize that. But it's a great quote by the great Matthew Henry. He even goes so far as to put it like this. We even need the parts of the body that produce bowels, and they should be honored. Listen, the church is unity in and by diversity because of Jesus. Rather than a conflict of interest you and I have a harmonizing interest it's Jesus Christ rather than irreconcilable differences we have unifying differences because of Jesus because he is our leader because he's our head verse 11 tells us that being animated by one spirit makes us one body a little over two years ago four churches merged together to become redemption Arizona We've since planted two more redemption congregations that are part of that and one more that's, um, uh, uh, that, is, uh, that is called Redemption San Francisco but not a part of Redemption Arizona. We still planted that church. Many of you know the pastor there, Justin Anderson. But a lot of people have said, why did you merge? Why would you go, why would you go and do that? Why would you take those four churches and merge them? And the answer has always been because we're better together than apart. 
we make a better body together. We're more effective together. We can do more ministry together. And that is true at the local level as well. It's true at every level of ministry. Your redemption community, your family, the local congregation, and Redemption Arizona. We are part of a body that is unified in Christ. And that is our first characteristic for a better church. Let me pray and Josh and Sean will come up and lead us into our time of communion. God. Thank you for challenging us with this and reminding us that we are one body and that we are one body because of you. God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for what he's done for us. We thank you that he gave his life on the cross so that we might have forgiveness and redemption from sin. But God, even more that we would be loved by you and that we would have life in you. God, thank you for that. And now as part of this body, we just pray that you would empower all of us, that your energy would flow through all of us so that we would we would be great at building others up and glorifying you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.